0: Now follow as I read one verse out of 2 Corinthians 5. It's a doozy, and it reads like this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures, forever hey guys this morning i want to start with a story and i want to close with a legend um i didn't think either one of these things up i got them out of a book so i'm not this smart but i i think they do serve our purpose as well as we look at this text here's the story it seems that during the reign of nero one of the roman emperors that the roman empire experienced a famine especially in the city of rome But there was plenty of grain, wheat, corn, and other grains in Egypt that you could buy. But Nero had told his ship captains that in their passages to Egypt, which wasn't that far from Italy, if you know your geography, but in in their visits to, um, to Egypt, they were to bring back nothing but sand for his gladiatorial arenas. So another man who owned his own two boats was at the harbor one day and he noticed that the, that the harbor was ringed by people who appeared to be starving. And their, their eyes were fixed on the horizon uh, in the hopes that they would see boats coming from Egypt bearing food for them. Only to be disillusioned and disappointed to find when the, do- the boats docked, they emptied nothing but sand so that Nero could continue in his bloodthirsty pursuits in those arenas. So this man who owned the two boats said to his captains, he said, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to bring back nothing but corn and wheat. Not a spoonful of sand do I want on my boats. I want nothing but corn and wheat to feed to starving people. That's the story. But here's my application of the story. Two of them actually. Number one, Folks, there are pulpits all over this land that are feeding starving people nothing but sand. Uh, The sand of politics, the sand of social agenda, the, the sand of philosophy. None of it will nourish, it will ultimately destroy. Hopefully, this is a pulpit that will give to God's people that which will nourish them. That everything that's unloaded from this pulpit will be wheat and corn for the soul here's my second application this text second corinthians 5 21 is a boat loaded with nourishment for god's people it is so full in fact that we won't be able to empty it today what we're going to do is treat it twice this sunday we can't next sunday because that's easter but the next Sunday, we'll look, at the, we'll look at the same verse, go over the same territory, really, twice, because there is so much in it that will nourish the, the souls of God's people. The, the corn and the wheat of the gospel are found filling this text, and we want to take a look at it uh, and take as long as we need. As we need. Now, uh, to take a look at the, before we get to the text, there's some, there's some kind of, introductory spade work that we must do so that we can better understand the text. Here's what I mean. Um, John Stott wrote a book entitled The Cross. It's a good book. It was, I don't know, 20 years ago, I guess. But uh, it's, it's quite a good book. And if you want to buy something that'll challenge you, get that. John Stott's The Cross. But in that book, he makes several observations that I want to share with you. Number one, never take for granted that sinners would, of course, be welcomed into heaven. Never take that for granted. That we can just show up and be admitted. Folks, the the question is not why God finds it difficult to forgive, but how he finds it possible to do so at all. Stott says, nothing is less obvious than forgiveness. He goes on. Forgiveness to man is the plainest of duties to God. It is the profoundest of problems. Now, the problem, of course, arises over the collision of God's infinite holiness and man's love of sin. Um, God is holy, is pure, is perfectly righteous and just. But on the other hand, man is anything but. And thus the problem. So the whole story of the Bible is designed to explain How a great and a holy God can, what he can and does to welcome sinners. What you find in this book is a very extensive discussion about how people like you and me can gain entrance into his presence. How does God do that? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 is going to tell you. Okay, guys. Um, I f- have four points, but really three. The fourth one I have to add and I'll explain it later. But there are three things that I want you to see in this text. And then we'll come back and try to find, discover more in it two weeks from today, Lord willing. But here's the first thing that I want you to notice as the text unfolds. I want you to notice that the primary actor in this whole redemptive drama is God the Father. The the initiator of this whole scheme this whole plan of redemption is found in the hands of god the father you'll notice in the text for our sake he made him now guys those are two pronouns and i challenge you uh, don't take my word for it but it's very clear that the first pronoun he is a reference to god the father and the second pronoun him is a reference to god the son But you'll notice in this scheme of redemption, the primary actor in it all is God the Father making him. Guys, um, John 3.16, our favorite text, says the same thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is God the Father whose love is is spotlighted in John 3.16. The parable, our favorite parable in the New Testament, the parable of the prodigal son. It opens this way. There was a man who had two sons. The parable is not about the two sons. The parable is about the father of the two sons and how that father made it possible for somebody as guilty as that prodigal to be received and reestablished. Gang, the moral governor of the universe actuates a plan that will satisfy the law and allow him to distribute mercy. So if it is God who is the author of this plan, you can bet that he will accept it. But he will accept only it. There is a plan of redemption authored and initiated by God. And he accepts all those who embrace that plan. That's the first point. Here's the second point. Who is at the center of this plan of God? That, of course, is Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who owed nothing to the law because he perfectly obeyed it. Did you notice that in the text? For our sake, he, God the Father, made him God the Son to be sin. Who knew no sin? The Son, who is at the center of this scheme of redemption, authored by God, is made sin. He didn't commit sin. He was made sin. And because men are ruined by sin and can do nothing about it themselves, God takes their sin and lays it upon Christ. Or in the language of the text, God made him. To be sin. So it is Christ who becomes the innocent substitute. And that act of laying our sin on Christ is called, and here comes a big old rich theological word, ladies and gentlemen, the act of the father laying sin on the son is called imputation. Guys, you got to get that word. Write it down in your Bibles. Write it somewhere. Write it on the back of your hand. Imputation. I-M-P-U-T-A-T-I-O-N. The act of God laying, making him who knew no sin to be sin, that act is summarized in the term imputation. Now let me see if I can describe or illustrate that act for you. I'm going to try to illustrate it out of a story that's found in the Old Testament. It's found in Leviticus 16. Gang, everybody I think here knows that the, the highest and holy day in all of the Jewish calendar is the day of atonement. It still is the highest and holiest day in Judaism, the Day of Atonement. It's described for you in Leviticus 16. Do you remember that day? It was the one day in the calendar year where the high priest who would dress up in all of his stuff with his turban That's the the one day that he would go back into the holiest of holies and there the Ark of the Covenant with the slab of gold and the called the mercy seat and inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments and he would go back in the holiest of holies bringing blood. And he would pour out that blood on the clamorings of the law from the Ark of the Covenant to quiet it and to silence it. The one day a year But the holiest of the holies was open to a human. This is the day of atonement. You know, they put ropes around his ankles so that if he died back there, they could yank him out because it was only one day a year that people went back there. The high priest went back there. You, You remember that. But once he was done out there or back there, he would come out and there waiting for him would be a goat. A goat, a real goat. And as that goat was held there, the high priest would very ceremoniously, very dramatically, very symbolically, very profoundly would take his two hands and would lay his hands on the head of the goat and by his so doing he would be symbolizing that the sins of Israel were being transferred to that goat And then the goat would be taken to the wilderness and set free. And that goat was called, of course, Azazel, the scapegoat. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is our scapegoat goat because the father knowing that he knew no sin has no obligations to the law has lived perfectly righteous takes our sin and lays it upon Christ and that is called Imputation. Do you get that? You gotta get it. It is it is the key element in the doctrine of justification by faith. Imputation. Folks, if if you need to know more, what you can do is go home this afternoon and study Romans 4. That's where Paul is laying out his doctrine of justification by faith, and he mentions this transfer some seven times in the one chapter. You got to get it, because it's going to come up again in just a minute. You understand? He who knew no sin was made sin. by his father and he took the sin away into the wilderness. Okay, that's wonderful, but that's only half the story. That's only half of the good news. what about us we see what the father has done with his son but what happens to us well first of all the us is defined in verse 17 remember we looked at verse 17 really one and a half weeks therefore if any man be in christ he's a new creation remember that So who is the us? It's those people who are in Christ, joined to Christ by union of faith. What happens to us? Are you ready? Because ladies and gentlemen, this is the good news of the gospel. The righteousness that God demands of us, perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, which we couldn't come up with, a righteousness that is possessed only by Christ his righteousness gets imputed there it is again to me and on the basis of Christ's righteousness God the Father declares all men who believe forgiven based on the merits of Jesus Christ folks by the way the Roman Catholic Church calls that a legal fiction we'll have to come back and discuss that another day But I want you to notice in the text. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, there's the us, we might become righteous. No, ladies and gentlemen, the text does not say that. It doesn't say so that we might become righteous. It says so that we might become the righteousness of God. God looks upon me not only as righteous, but as righteousness. And listen to this part, ladies and gentlemen. My sin is transferred to Christ and his righteousness is transferred, imputed to me. God looks upon me as if I am righteousness and looks upon Christ as if he is sin. Now guys, here's my fourth point that is not in the text. It doesn't, but I always have to say this because I'm so afraid people are gonna mistake what I'm saying. Let me say this real quickly. When I am speaking to people about becoming a Christian, when I'm speaking to them about conversion, I must strenuously oppose good works of any kind, including baptism. However, When I'm speaking to a Christian about a life of holiness, a life of sanctification, I must promote good works of all kinds, reminding them that none of the performance of those good works is meritorious in any way. Now guys, here's the legend that I promised. It's a story that has some historical roots to it, but it just has got legendary properties in it. It's about the Empress Helena, or Helena, and you know who she was. She was the mother of Constantine. Constantine was a Roman emperor who was converted at the Battle of Milvian Bridge. He was converted to Christ, Uh, because he said he saw a a cross in the sky he won his battle went back to rome and announced that all of the roman empire was now christian which was to do us no favors as the christian church it is also said that he constantine went back to rome and through his testimony his mother helena was converted which is all probably historical this too is historical that she decided to pay a trip to jerusalem because she was looking for the true cross. And that, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you will recall that her name is found several places in, in um in uh, Jerusalem, in fact, she is credited with the beginning of the construction of the, uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is the number one tourist attraction in Jerusalem. It's the place where we're told that on one end you find Golgotha where Jesus was crucified and on the other end you find where he was buried and resurrected from the dead, all under one roof. It's really a spooky place. But um, uh, she is credited with the building of that thing. Um, But she goes to Jerusalem, which is again, again, all historical, and she conducts her own archaeological dig. And here's where things turn legendary. Um, It is said that she found three crosses in her archaeological dig. Um, But she still was faced with the problem. I don't know which one of these is the actual cross on which Jesus was crucified. So a couple of our advisors uh, suggested that she might perform a couple of tests, The first test was to break off little pieces of each cross and take them to the sick and see if any of them performed wonders. Well, indeed, one lady was raised out of her illness, uh, having been touched by one of the crosses, but they still weren't sure. So they conducted a second test. The second test went like this. They found a, they went and got a corpse, a dead body, a cadaver. A dead body, and they brought it to the crosses, and they laid the dead body on one of the crosses, and nothing happened. So they took the body off of that one cross and put it on the second cross, and lo and behold, the dead body sprang to life. And they said, that indeed is the true cross on which Christ was crucified. Now, here's my application. Ladies and gentlemen, the only message that will bring you to life is the message that is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. I'm not talking about my sermon. I'm talking about a a gospel that emphasizes the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ only. The only message that will ever bring any man to life is that one. Ladies and gentlemen, some of you have been eating on sand for years. The sand of your own human merit, your own self-righteousness, and it will ultimately destroy you. The only the only message that will nourish the soul, the only message that will be wheat and corn for your soul is the message of Christ, the one who knew no sin but became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. All other messages are nothing but sand. Our Father, would you use this text to show people the glorious beauty of the gospel? Would you allow them to see that here is where life can be found? Nowhere else. And would you draw them to the place, O God, where they are done with sand and will feed on nothing more than the bread of heaven. Our Father, if you have brought non-Christians here, do not let them leave without coming to terms with you through faith in Christ. Do that, O God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.